morning, Revelation Church. Woo! How's everybody doing? Good. All right. Uh, just as fair warning before we get started, uh, yesterday I worked out for the first time in a very long time. So if my legs give out and I just fall over on the ground over here, just let me be. It'll be fine. We'll get through the message somehow. All right. So that has nothing to do with the message this morning. Just wanted to share that little announcement with you. All right. So we're going to jump in. We've been working through Matthew 26 right now. And as we work through this chapter, we see that everything is starting to unravel. The priests have plot to kill Jesus. Jesus is prepared for his burial. We see that when he is anointed with oil. Judas is betraying Jesus. Peter and the rest of the disciples will betray him and desert him. And Jesus will have to go through this process of his death alone. It's almost like it'd make a great movie. Anybody seen Passion of the Christ? Okay. So as we look at this chapter here, one of the things that really sticks out for this section that we're reading this morning is Jesus's humanity. There's probably no other scripture in the Bible that speaks more clearly or demonstrates his humanity than this section right here. So I think it's important that before we really jump into the text that we do a little bit of theology or the study of the nature of the divine, in our case, God. Because there's a spectrum. When people think about Jesus, you have on one end, maybe he's a superhero. Maybe on the other end, he's simply a man. And if you've kind of wrestled with that and worked through that, um, Christians, obviously, we believe that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. But there's some confusion in that. And I would actually like to suggest a book to you if you haven't uh, kind of worked through some of the historical heresies related to the nature of Jesus. There's a great book. It's called Superheroes Can't Save You by Todd Miles. And it just goes through a handful of heresies about the nature of Jesus. So I'll use some of the ideas from this book this morning and just kind of work through it here. So first end of the spectrum, we have the superhero. Think about Jesus as Superman. He wears a disguise. He's not actually human. He's simply just a God in disguise. When he's needed, he just jumps into a phone booth and ta-da, sheds his disguise and now he is Superman. Now this came, this belief came out of the early church as a heresy. It's called docetism. It's a Greek word, doking, which means to seem, seem to be man. It's also rooted in dualism, the idea that the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. Jesus couldn't come in the flesh because the flesh is bad. Therefore, he came as God in disguise because the spirit is good. And like Clark Kent, Jesus was only simply disguised as a human. We might think we're immune to thinking about this or thinking about it this way, but I wanted to throw up a slide here. And this is how I saved the world. You can see Jesus surrounded by a handful of superheroes. 
I personally love this slide. I think it's awesome. But at the same time, this is kind of the same idea. Jesus came as a superhero to save the world. He's not actually God or actually man. He's just simply God putting on a disguise looking like man. You might also see t-shirts that say, Jesus is my superhero. So that's one end of the spectrum. So we have the superhero on this end, and then on the other end we have, Jesus was simply man. The other example is Batman. He's an extraordinary human, no real powers. Nobody really knows what Batman does, but he is pretty cool, right? So he's simply a man with cool tools. Jesus was a great human, maybe a teacher, a philosopher. Jesus wasn't divine, simply a man with great tools to accomplish his mission. You might see this with t-shirts that say, Jesus is my homeboy. We're taking Jesus, setting aside his divinity, and putting him in as merely human. Are you guys confused yet? Well, if you look at what's fascinating about this is if you are confused, you're probably in good company because even the early church was challenged with this idea. So on the next slide here, we have the Nicene Creed. This came around about 325 uh, AD. And there are sections, I won't read through all of it, but I just want to highlight a couple things. So you can see the bold, God from God, true God from true God, not made. So he's, first section there, he's God from God, divine. Next section, not made. So he wasn't created of one being with the Father. I think go to the next slide. And was made man. Go ahead to the next slide. Uh, sake, he was crucified. So in order to be crucified, he has to be human. So as you work through the Nicene Creed, you can see that one of the challenges they had was identifying how is God or how is Jesus 100% God and 100% human? So these are the declarations that are in this creed. And I think it's important to wrestle with that and think through it. We see in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says, adopt the same attitude that is of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he came, had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see also in Colossians 2.9, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So the entire fullness of God dwells in Jesus. So he is divine. He is also human. So you might ask yourself, why does this matter? Why spend the time working through Jesus' humanity, the theology behind it? Why does that matter? If Jesus wasn't human, he didn't live the perfect life. 
and he would not be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. If Jesus wasn't God, he can't forgive sin and make us into a new creation. There is no justice. Everything is left broken, and we have no hope. So it is very important that we wrestle with the idea that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. How does that work? I'm glad you asked. I don't know. If you came this morning hoping that I'd provide that answer, I'm sorry, I don't have that answer. But as hopefully I've demonstrated, this is a truth that is found in scripture, it's rooted in scripture, it's something that the church has wrestled with for a very long time. So it is true, but how it works, we don't know. Because it involves the physical and the spiritual as one. We don't even understand the physical, let alone the spiritual. But we see the examples of both in Scripture. And today, what we'll focus in on is specifically Jesus' humanity. So we'll start. Matthew 26. It's on page 882 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if that helps. Now, as we read through this scripture, I want to highlight three things. And I know that this is kind of like a high-level words, carry a lot of meaning, those types of things. But three things I want to kind of work through this morning. I want to work through grief, relationship, and love. Looking at the first verse there, reading 36 to 39. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little farther, he fell down face or he fell down, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So we see the first point is grief. And Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just to kind of give you a little context of where we're located, we're located just outside the city of Jerusalem. It's in the vicinity of Mount Olives. It's a popular place for Jesus and his disciples to escape to. And Gethsemane, meaning olive press. And it's very fitting a place for Jesus to start his process of going to the cross. Because Gethsemane is olive press. Jesus will be pressed. He will be pushed to the brink. Now, if you notice... Jesus is deeply grieved. He's not okay. Maybe you've been here. Maybe you've experienced your Gethsemane. Maybe you've had the loss of a loved one. Maybe a friend has betrayed you. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you haven't experienced any of those. Consider that a blessing. But I might suggest to you, prepare for it. Because I can uh, guarantee you one thing in this life, there you will experience grief. 
And so as we look at this passage, we will see how Jesus works through grief. Now, how do we help those that are experiencing grief? Unfortunately, not always well. We might say, praying for you, which is probably the extent of your prayer. Or you might quote a verse. God works all things. Have you heard that one? Those are, those are good in of themselves, but when someone is in deep grief, as Jesus is here, he is to the point of death. He has fallen down on his face. He is in great grief. He is suffering right now, and what he desires is for relationship. So we might go with the idea, pick ourselves up. And this is good in certain situations. But like I was just saying, Jesus is in grief. Does he appear to be okay right now? No, he's not. So when you're telling somebody that is in grief to feel better, don't worry, it's okay. You're telling the person to be better than Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm surely not better than Jesus. So when we're in those grief situations, we have to remember there is a hope in that. There is a hope in our grief. Our hope is that Jesus has been through it. Jesus has struggled with grief. So that should be an encouragement to us. But you notice here in his humanity, he is deeply grieved and he is looking for his disciples to be with him, to pray, to join him in prayer. But they don't. And that's how Jesus shows his humanity in that he is suffering greatly right now. We see in Matthew 16, 21, Jesus predicts his death. He knows what's before him. From then on, Jesus began to point to the disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes to be killed and raised on the third day. So Jesus predicts his death. He knows what his mission is. It's been set before time. So he knows what he's come to earth for. But I think there's a interesting distinction here that we have to make. There is a difference between knowing and really knowing. Let me give you an example. So when I was younger, about 20, I ended up having serious jaw surgery. Essentially after braces and everything, my jaws kind of sat like this. And so I was going to end up having surgery where they break the top here, the sides here, and then realign the jaws. So they sit correctly. So that involved taking bone out of my hip and putting it in the roof of my mouth. 
Now with that, it's really easy to sit there and go, yeah, I've listened to the doctors, I've watched videos, I've got the date on the calendar, I know what to expect. But nothing could ex prepare me for the excruciating pain that I woke up in. I remember waking up to the point where I shot up out of bed screaming because of the pain. So no matter what I did in preparation up to that point, there was nothing that was going to prepare me for the pain that I woke up to. Now the same thing here with Jesus. Jesus may have experienced or know that he is going to die. So Jesus knows ahead of time that he's going to die, but he has not actually experienced that death yet. And so as he grows closer to that date, it's going to start to set in. And that's where we are this morning. He is starting to feel the impact and what's before him. And when that day arrives, that realization really sets in. We see that the grief was going to kill him. Luke twenty-two forty-four. he sweat drops of blood. Now there's a medical term called hematohydrosis. Forgive me, I'm not a, a doctor. I know there's one in the room. Uh, due to suffering, due to extreme suffering, you can actually end up in a situation, you can look it up online, you can actually sweat drops of blood. The capillaries burst open and blood will run down your face. So we see that Jesus is overcome with grief to the point of sweat like blood. In the verse before that, we see in Luke twenty-two forty-three, 43, an angel appears to strengthen him. So Jesus is so grieved to the point that he is going to die. And so God sends an angel to strengthen him. So you might ask, why is he so stressed? Sure, everyone is going to desert him. He would be beaten, he would die. But that wasn't the only reason why he was stressed. Up until this point, he's had perfect communion with the Father. But what laid before him was something in which he would have to go alone. We see in scripture later when Jesus is on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a point when Jesus is on the cross where Jesus is forsaken. And so there's a point in which he will be alone. Now we notice in the passage here, there's another section that says, let this cup pass from me. What is this cup he's talking about? This is another reason why he is grieved, because it's the cup of wrath. If you've studied scripture, you know that as we sin, there's this idea of a cup, that as we sin, it is continually being filled. And at some point, there will be justice for the things that we have done that are wrong. And so as that cup fills up, at some point, somebody has to drink that cup. And for the believer, it is Jesus that drinks the cup on the cross. He receives the full wrath of God on the cross. 
Now, if you're not a believer, you'll still drink the cup of wrath in the form of hell. So there is another reason why Jesus is feeling so grieved, because he will feel the complete wrath of God the Father to provide justice for us. So Jesus isn't okay. And when we're not okay, that's okay. So we have to understand that grief is a reality in our life. And as we look at this passage here, Jesus was grieved. And we see how he dealt with grief. He went to his father in prayer. And that brings us to the next section, 40 to 43. We see, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So the next point is relationship. As we read this passage, we see that Jesus is praying through the night. He is seeking the Father. Jesus in his humanity is struggling with what God the Father is asking of him. So he seeks the Father in prayer. What a great model for us. You see, as we read this, Initially, Jesus is stating, hey, I have a problem. Can we talk about this? Can we work through this? But ultimately, prayer, this is a quote by Dallas Willard. I'll throw this out for you guys. Prayer is talking to God about what we are doing together. And no one demonstrates this better than Jesus. Because we are seeing the dialogue back and forth as we read this scripture. Jesus is expressing his humanity, his struggles, his temptation. Notice how Jesus' response changes as we read through this passage. He will be conforming his will to the will of the Father. His initial prayer is, if it is possible, let the, this cup pass from me. His second prayer is, if this cannot, unless I drink it, your will be done. Notice the difference, the subtle differences in the two prayers. First prayer, if there is any other way, let's do that, says Jesus. Second prayer, if there is no other way, then let's do this. This is prayer. This is prayer for us. It is the slow process of our will conforming to the will of God. How do we know God's will? Through prayer. Through the study of his word and community. I think that's important. You have prayer, talking to the Father. You have the study of his word that provides the reflection that we need. We might have ideas, but as we read scripture, it reforms those ideas to the will of, fa of the Father. And then in addition to that, having community, surrounding yourself with other believers that can speak truth and love in your life. 
notice Jesus is demonstrating a couple things here. First, respect. Jesus isn't blowing it up saying, I don't want to do this. I'm not doing it. Forget it. I'm out of here. That would be the temptation. Just wanting to be done. If there's any other way, please take it. Jesus is respecting the Father. He's saying, I don't want to do this, but if I have to, I will. Think about it in your own life. I don't want to go through the loss of a loved one, but if I have to, I will, because I know that is the Father's will for me. Second, we have submission. Ew, what a yucky word. But not when it's done the right way. Jesus in his humanity is putting aside his desire for the desire and the will of the Father. But you might ask, why was he able to do this? Because he and the Father love each other. They completely trust each other and they are in perfect communion with each other. Plus, Jesus is going to lay down his life in the next chapter. And he's not doing that just because he loves us, but because he loves the Father. And that kind of struck me as I was studying this passage this last week. The fact that Jesus didn't die just solely because he loves us, but that he died because he loves the Father. And he's willing to submit in that love. So the Trinity, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are respecting and submitting where where it's appropriate in relation to each other. The Father has the plan and the Son is living out that plan. Jesus aligns his will to the Father's through prayer. And as a result, he is able to persevere even when in his humanity he is tempted to do else. He started out asking if there was any other way and ended with, let's do this. The disciples, on the other hand, they were not able to persevere. They did not seek God in prayer. And it's proven in the next section. Let's go ahead and read that, starting in verse 44. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying, the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. So my third point, so we've had grief, relationship, now focusing in on love. Jesus wanted his disciples to stay awake, stay up, and pray because he knew what was coming. He knew that there were going to be challenges ahead and in order to prepare for those, he should seek the power and the strength of God. Also, Jesus probably wanted support. I mean, we're talking about the disciples here. He initially starts with a handful of them. Then he takes Peter, James, and John, moves a little bit farther. These are, this is his inner circle. He has his closest friends with him. And then he goes a little bit farther to his closest friend, 
the Father. But he wants them to join him in prayer. But they fail him. They failed, they fell asleep in Jesus' greatest time of need. I personally can't fault them too much. Uh, It's kind of a family joke. I can fall asleep just about anywhere, whether it's talking to people, watching a movie, even standing up. I should probably get that checked. But uh, they were not seeking God in this situation. They were not relying on the Spirit to encourage them, to strengthen them, because the flesh is weak and the Spirit is strong. So even after the failure, though, Jesus continues to love the disciples. He doesn't bail on them. He doesn't say, okay, well, if you don't want to stay up all night and join me in prayer, well, I'm out of here. See ya. No, he loves the disciples, and he will continue to the cross. That's a great example for us. Because we may have people that fail us from time to time. But we're called not to give up on them. To be more like Jesus. So if you're not able to love those that have failed, what should you do? Do what Jesus did here. Pray about it. Pray that God would give you the strength to love those people. Looking at the dialogue here, Jesus says, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what you're thinking. Help me get here. Same thing, if you're struggling with people that have failed you, that have wronged you, that have hurt you, same thing. God, I know that your word says that I should love, but I'm finding it very hard to do exactly that. I am struggling loving somebody. Please help me. So we see a great example here of how Jesus shows his love even when people fail. So let me ask you this. How often do you fail Jesus? Guess what? As a follower of Jesus, he still loves you even when you fail. Let that be a truth for you this morning. Even when you fail, Jesus still loves you. And we put those two things together. We fail, Jesus loves. We fail, that should create humility in us, recognizing the fact that we do fail. So that should bring us to humility. Jesus loves, that's our confidence, that's our strength the fact that Jesus loves us. Now, as we wrap up this section, we have Jesus in the garden. He is starting his journey to the cross, specifically. Granted, his whole life has led up to this point. But there's a turning point right here. This is where it gets real. It starts in the garden. And if you have studied your Bible, there's another garden, right? Going back to Genesis, you look at Adam in the garden. 
there's a number of comparisons of Jesus being the second Adam. So I wanted to throw up a slide for you. Yes, another chart. Here we go. Uh, first, you have Adam, then you have Jesus. Notice on the Adam side, my will, I will do what I want to do. I know best. I'm not deceived. In my pride, I'm good. On the other side, Jesus, Father, your will be done. Then we have Adam, fear reigned. After Adam and Eve had fallen, what did they do? They ran away, they hid. What did Jesus do? He stepped right into it. Fear is conquered on the cross. Next we have union lost. There is a separation between us and God because of sin. With Jesus, union is gained. Through the death and resurrection of Christ on the cross, we have a relationship with God. Adam, he ran away from God in his time of struggle. Notice Jesus ran to his father. Then Adam, sacrifice began. One uh, little epiphany that I had uh, a while back was Jesus, or God provides clothing for Adam and Eve. Where do you think those clothing came from? A lot of people suggest it came from the first sacrifice. So the sacrifice began, and there's sacrifices throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes along, and he ends that as the perfect sacrifice on the cross for us. So there's a quote in the expositor's Bible commentary that I really liked. It's, in the first garden, not your will, but mine, changed paradise to desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not my will, but yours, brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. Adam falls, relationship separated. Jesus dies, relationship restored. So I think that's a very powerful illustration of just exactly what Jesus is doing. He is the one who has died on the cross. And as we move through these next couple sections leading into Easter, we will see Jesus moving closer and closer to the cross, where ultimately he will die. He will have the full wrath of God poured out on him. He will drink the cup in our place as believers. And so as we come to a time of communion, I just ask that you would reflect on that. Just think about the fact that Jesus died on the cross. He drank the cup of wrath to pardon us. And now we simply drink this cup in remembrance of what he has done. What a true act of love that Jesus did on the cross for us. No greater love than he who 
is willing to die, who will lay down his life. So this morning, as we wrap up, I just pray that you would take that into your thoughts. Think about that. As you grab the cup and the wafer, spend some time reflecting on exactly what Jesus has done for us. It's really easy, really, really easy when we do communion every week to get in the habit of doing that. So as Zach was talking about, I think it's awesome that we're taking some art and shaking it up a little bit. Spend some time taking in the art. It's by a wonderful artist after all, right? That's my wife, okay. So I'll just throw that out there. But yeah, I I want to just let this passage sink in, seeing what God, what Jesus has done as he willingly went to the cross. In his humanity, it took a took a process, and in that process, he demonstrated to us what we should do when we're in our darkest hour. We should run. We should fall face down and pray and seek God. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.